0: Section 10 of Rough and Ready, or Life Among the New York Newsboys, by Horatio Alger, Jr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tori Falder. Chapter 19. Rose Again in Trouble Leaving Ben Gibson on the track of Mr. Martin, we must return to Rose and inquire how she fared in her new home at Brooklyn. Mrs. Waters had already taken a strong prejudice against her, on account of the misrepresentations of her daughter Fanny if fanny was an angel as her mother represented then angels must be very disagreeable people to live with the little girl was rude selfish and had a violent temper had mr martin stood by rose her treatment would have been much better For policy would have led mrs waters to treat her with distinguished consideration but as parental fondness was not a weakness of her stepfather the boarding-house keeper felt under no restraint "'What shall I do if your little girl behaves badly, Mr. Martin?' said Mrs. Waters, as he was about to leave the house in the morning. "Punish her, ma'am. You needn't feel no delicacy about it. I'll stand by you. She's a bad, troublesome girl, and a good whipping every day is just what she needs. Do you hear that, miss?' Rose did not answer, but her lip quivered a little. It seemed hard to the little girl, fresh from the atmosphere of love by which she had been surrounded in her recent home, to be treated with such injustice and unfairness. Why don't you answer, Miss, roared James Martin savagely. Didn't you hear what I said? Yes, said Rose. Mind you, remember it, then. If you don't behave yourself, Mrs. Waters has my full permission to punish you. And if she don't punish you enough, I'll give you a little extra when I get home. I shall ask her to report to me about you. Do you hear? Yes. Yes? Where's your manners? Say yes, sir. Yes, sir. "'Mind you, remember, then, and there's one thing more. "'Don't you go to run away. "'If you do, it'll be the worst for your brother.' "'With this parting threat, he went out of the house. "'Now, children,' said Mrs. Waters, "'go out and play. "'I'm up to my elbows and work, and I can't have you in the way.' "'Where shall we go?' asked Rose. "'Out in the backyard?' "'I don't want to go out in the backyard,' said Fanny. "'There ain't anything to do there.' "'Well, go out into the street, then, if you want to.' "'Yes, I'd rather go there.' Rose followed Fanny into the street in rather a listless manner, for she did not expect much enjoyment. "'Now what shall we do?' asked Fanny. "'I don't know, I'm sure,' said Rose. "'I know where there's a candy shop. Do you?' "'Yes, just at the corner. Do you like candy?' "'Yes, pretty well.' "'You haven't got any money, have you?' said Fanny insinuatingly. "'No, I haven't,' answered Rose. "'I wish you had. I like candy, but my mother won't give me any money to buy any. She's real mean.' do you call your mother mean said rose rather shocked yes she might give me a penny oh there's a hand-organ come let's go and hear it an italian with a hand-organ had taken his station before a house in the next block there was a half-grown girl with a tambourine in his company and best of all a monkey was perched on the performer's shoulder with his tail curled up in a ring and his head covered with a red cap and his sharp little eyes roving from one to another of the motley group drawn around the organ keenly watching for the stray pennies which were bestowed as much for the sake of seeing the monkey pick them up as a compensation for the music which was of rather an inferior order even for a hand-organ let's go and hear the organ repeated fanny to this proposal rose made no objection children are not critical in music and the tunes which issued from the wheezy organ had their attraction for her the monkey was equally attractive with his queer brown face and rose was very willing to go nearer with her companion "'Ain't he a funny monkey,' said Fanny. "'He took off his hat to me. "'I wish I had a penny to throw to him, "'though I don't think I'd give it to him. "'I'd rather spend it for candy,' she added, "'after a little reflection. "'Here the organ struck up old dog-tray, "'that veteran melody which celebrates "'in rather doleful measure the fidelity "'and kindness of its canine hero. "'But the small crowd of listeners were not appreciative, "'as in response to the strains "'only a solitary penny was forthcoming, "'and this was thrown by a butcher's boy "'who chanced to be passing.' The Italian, concluding that probably he was not likely to realize a fortune in that locality, shouldered his hand-organ and moved up the street. "'Let's go after him,' said Fanny. "'Shall you know the way back?' said Rose. "'Yes, I know well enough,' said Fanny carelessly. Rose accordingly followed her without hesitation, and when the Italian again stopped, the two little girls made a part of his audience. After going through his series of tunes and gathering a small stock of pennies, the organ grinder again started on his travels. Rose and Fanny, having no better amusement before them, still kept his company, and this continued for an hour or two. By this time they had unconsciously got a considerable distance from home. There is no knowing how far they would have gone, had not the tambourine player detected Fanny in picking up a penny, which had been thrown for the musicians. Fanny, supposing that she was not observed, slipped it into her pocket slyly, intending to spend it for candy on her way home. But she was considerably alarmed when the girl, her dark face full of indignation, ran forward and, seizing her by the arm, shook her, uttering the while an incoherent medley of Italian and English. "'What's the row? What has the little girl done?' asked a man in the group. "'She won teeth! She took Penny and put it in her pocket!' said the Italian girl, continuing to shake her. Fanny protested with tears that she had not done it. But a boy nearby testified that he had seen her do it, with shame and mortification. Fanny was obliged to produce the purloined penny and give it to the monkey, who, in spite of her intended dishonesty, had the politeness to remove his hat and make her a very ceremonious bow. I should think you'd be ashamed of yourselves, said a stout woman addressing both little girls. I didn't take the penny, said Rose, resenting the imputation. I wouldn't steal for anything. She wanted me to take it, said Fanny maliciously, so that I could buy some candy for her. That's a story, said Rose indignantly. "'I didn't know you meant to do it till I saw you slip it into your pocket.' "'I've no doubt one's as bad as the other,' said the woman, with commendable impartiality. "'Go away,' said the tambourine girl. "'You steal some more penny!' "'Come away, Fanny,' said Rose. "'I'm ashamed to stay here any longer, and I should think you would be.' As circumstances made the neighborhood of the musicians rather unpleasant, Fanny condescended to adopt the suggestion of her companion. I guess I'll go home, she said. I'm hungry, and Ma'll give me some gingerbread. She won't give you any, for you're a bad girl. What are you? retorted Rose. I'm a good girl. I never heard of a good girl stealing, said Rose. If you say that again, I'll strike you, said Fanny, who was rather sensitive about the charge, particularly as it happened to be true. Rose was not fond of disputing and made no reply, but waited for Fanny to show her the way home. But this Fanny was unable to do. She had followed the organ grinder round so many corners that she had quite lost her reckoning and had no idea where she was. She stood undecided and looked helplessly around her. I don't know where to go, she said. Don't you know the way home? asked Rose. No, answered Fanny, almost ready to cry. Rose hardly knew whether to be glad or to be sorry. If she should be lost and not find her way back to the boarding house, there would be this comfort, at least, that she would be separated from Mr. Martin. Still, she was not quite prepared to live in the streets, and didn't know how to go to work to find her brother. Besides, Mr. Martin had threatened to harm him in case she ran away. So, on the whole, she was rather in hopes that Fanny would remember the way. We'd better go straight along, suggested Rose, and perhaps we shall find your house. As Fanny had no better plan to propose, they determined to adopt this plan. Neither had taken any particular notice of the way by which they had come, and were therefore unable to recognize any landmarks. So, instead of nearing home, they were actually getting farther and farther away from it, and there is no knowing where they would finally have brought up if, in turning a corner, they had not found themselves all at once face to face with Mrs. Waters herself. It may be explained that the latter, after an hour not hearing the voices of the children outside, had become alarmed and started in pursuit. She had already had a long and weary walk, and it was only by the merest chance that she caught sight of them this long walk with the anxiety which she had felt had not improved her temper but made her angry so that she was eager to vent her indignation upon the two children what do you mean you little plagues by running away she asked seizing each child roughly by the arm here i've been rushing around the streets after you neglecting my work for a good hour she wanted to go said fanny pointing to rose so she led you away did she asked mrs waters giving rose a rough shake Yes, she wanted me to go after an organ, said Fanny, seeing a way to screen herself at the expense of her companion, and like a mean little coward, availing herself of it. So this is another one of your tricks, miss, is it? demanded Mrs. Waters angrily. It isn't true, said Rose. She asked me to go. Oh, no doubt you can lie as fast as you can talk, said Mrs. Waters. I thought all the while that Fanny was too good a girl to give her mother so much trouble. It was only to oblige you that she went off that comes of having such a bad girl in the family i shan't keep you long for you'll be sure to spoil my fanny who was one of the best little girls in the neighborhood till you came to lead her into mischief but i'll come up with you miss you may depend upon that your father told me i might punish you and i mean to do it just wait till we get home that's all here mrs waters paused more from lack of breath than because she had given full expression to her feelings She relaxed her hold upon Fanny, but continued to grasp Rose roughly by the shoulder, dragging her rapidly along. Rose saw that it was of no use to defend herself. Mrs. Waters was determined to find her guilty, and would not believe any statement she might make. So she ran along to adapt herself to the pace of the angry woman beside her. They soon reached the house and entered, Mrs. Waters pushing Rose before. Now for your punishment, said Mrs. Waters grimly. I'm going to lock you up down cellar. Oh, don't, said Rose, terrified. I don't want to go down in the dark cellar. For, like most children, she had a dread of darkness. But Mrs. Waters was inexorable. She opened the door of the cellar and compelled the little girl to descend the dark staircase. Then she slammed the door and left her sobbing on the lowest step. Poor Rose, she felt that she had indeed fallen among enemies. Chapter 20 How Ben Succeeded Ben Gibson was very willing to suspend blacking boots and follow in the track of james Martin, partly because he considered it easier work, but partly also because he was glad to be of service to the newsboy. The fact was that Rough and Ready was popular among the street boys. He was brave and manly, rough with those who tried to impose upon him, but always ready to do a favor to a boy who needed it. Ben had not forgotten how two winters before, when he had been laid up with a sickness brought on by exposure, rufus had himself contributed liberally to helping him and led other boys to follow his example thus defraying his expenses until he got about again a kind heart will make its possessor popular sooner than anything else and it was this together with his well-known prowess which made rough and ready not only popular but admired in the circle to which he belonged Ben followed james martin down spruce street keeping sufficiently in the background so as not to excite the suspicions of the latter "'I wonder where he's going,' thought Ben. "'I don't think I could follow him more than a hundred miles without wanting to rest. "'Anyhow, I guess I can stand it as well as he can.' "'Martin walked along in a leisurely manner. "'The fact was that he had made up his mind not to work that day, "'and therefore he felt in no particular hurry. "'This was rather improvident on his part, "'since he had voluntarily assumed the extra expense of supporting Rose. "'But then prudence and foresight were not his distinguishing traits.' He had a vague idea that the world owed him a living, and that he would rub along somehow or other. This is a mischievous doctrine, and men who deserve to succeed never hold it. It is true, however, that the world is pretty sure to provide a living for those who are willing to work for it, but makes no promises to those who expect to be taken care of without any exertions of their own the difference between the rich merchant and the ragged fellow who solicits his charity as he is stepping into his carriage consists frequently not in natural ability but in the fact that the one has used his ability as a stepping-stone to success and the other has suffered his to become stagnant through indolence or dissipation but we must come back to mr martin he walked down towards the east river till he reached water street then turning to the left he brought up at a drinking-saloon which he had visited more than once on a similar errand He found an old acquaintance who invited him to drink, an invitation which he accepted promptly. Ben remained outside. "'I thought he did business at some such place by the looks of his nose,' soliloquized Ben. "'What shall I do while I'm waiting for him?' Looking around him, Ben saw two boys of about his own age pitching pennies. As this was a game with which long practice had made him familiar, he made overtures towards joining them. "'Let a feller in, will you?' he said. "'How much you got?' asked one of the boys in a businesslike way. Ten cents, said Ben. I lent old Vanderbilt most of my money day afore yesterday to buy up a new railroad, and he ain't forked over. Ben need not have apologized for his comparative poverty, as he proved to be the richest of the three. The game commenced and continued for some time with various mutations of fortune, but at the end of half an hour Ben found himself richer by two cents than when he had commenced. From time to time he cast a watchful glance at the saloon opposite, for he had no intention of suffering the interest of the game to divert him from the object of his expedition. At length he saw James Martin issue from the saloon and prepared to follow him. "'Are you going?' asked one of the boys with whom he had been playing. "'Yes, I've got some important business on hand. Here's your money,' and he threw down the two cents he had won. "'You won it. What if I did? I only played for amusement. What's two cents to a gentleman of fortune with a big mansion uptown?' "'It's the tombs he mains,' said one of his late opponents, laughing. "'He can blow, he can,' remarked the other. But Ben couldn't stop to continue the conversation, as James Martin had already turned the corner of the street. It was observable that his gait already showed a slight unsteadiness, which he tried to remedy by walking with unusual erectness. The consequence of this was that he didn't keep fairly in view the occupants of the sidewalk, which led to his deliberately walking into rather a stout female, who was approaching in the opposite direction. "'Is it going to murder me, Yar, ye spalpine? she exclaimed wrathfully, as soon as she could collect her breath. "'Don't you know better than to run into a decent woman in that way?' "'It was you run to me,' said Martin, steadying himself with some difficulty after the collision. "'Hear him now,' said the woman, looking about her to call attention to the calumny. "'I see how it is,' said Martin. "'You're drunk, ma'am. You can't walk straight.' "'This led to a voluble outburst from the irate woman, "'to which Ben listened with evident enjoyment. "'Am I drunk, boy?' asked Martin, appealing to Ben, "'whom he for the first time noticed. "'Of course you ain't, Governor,' said Ben. "'You never did such a thing in your life.' "'What do you know about it?' demanded the woman. "'It's my belief you're drunk yourself.' "'Do you know who this gentleman is?' asked Ben, "'passing over the personal charge.' no i don't he's president of the fifth avenue temperance society said ben impressively he's just been drinking the health of his feller officers in a glass of something stiff round in water street that's all the woman sniffed contemptuously but not deigning a reply passed on who are you asked martin turning to ben you're a good feller that's so said ben that's what everybody says "'So my good feller,' said Martin, whose recent potations must have been of considerable strength to judge from their effects. "'You know me.' "'Of course I do,' said Ben. "'I've knowed you from infancy.' "'Take a drink?' said Martin. "'Not at present,' said Ben. "'My health don't require it this morning.' "'Where are you going?' "'Well,' said Ben, "'I ain't very particular. I'm a wealthy orphan with nothing to do. I'll walk along with you if it's agreeable.' "'I wish you would,' said Martin. "'I ain't feeling quite well this morning. "'I've got the headache.' "'I don't wonder at that,' thought Ben. "'I'll accompany you to your residence, if it ain't too far off.' "'I live in Brooklyn,' said Martin. "'Oh, ho, oh, thought Ben. "'Well, that information is worth something. "'Shall we go over Fulton Ferry?' he asked aloud. "'Yes,' said Martin. "'Take hold of my arm, and I'll support your tottering steps,' said Ben. "'Mr. Martin, who found locomotion in a straight line rather difficult on account of his headache,' willingly availed himself of this obliging offer, and the two proceeded on their way to Fulton Ferry. "'Have you got much of a family?' inquired Ben, by way of being sociable. "'I've got a little girl,' said Martin, "'and a boy, but he's an impudent young rascal.' "'What's his name?' "'Rufus. He sells newspapers in front of the Times office.' "'The boys call him rough and ready, don't they?' "'Yes. Do you know him?' asked Martin, a little suspiciously. "'He ain't a friend of yours, is he?' "'I owe him a lickin,' said Ben, with a show of indignation. "'So do I,' said Martin. "'He's an impudent young rascal.' "'So he is,' chimed in Ben. "'I'll tell you what I'd do if I were you.' "'What?' "'I'd disinherit him, cut him off with a shilling.' "'I mean to,' said Martin, pleased to find sympathy in his dislike to his stepson. Probably the newsboy would not have suffered acute anguish had he learned his stepfather's intention to disinherit him, as the well-known lines, Who steals my purse steals trash, might at almost any time have been appropriately applied to Mr. Martin's purse, when he happened to carry one. Ben paid the toll at the ferry, and the two entered the boat together. He conducted Mr. Martin to the gentleman's cabin, where he found him a seat in the corner. James Martin sank down and closed his eyes in a drowsy fit, produced by the liquor he had drunk. Ben took a seat opposite him. "'You're an interesting object,' soliloquized Ben, as he looked across the cabin at his companion.' It's a great blessing to be an orphan if a feller can't own a better father than that. However, I'll stick to him till I get him home. I wonder what he'd say if he knowed what I was going with him for. If things don't go contrary, I guess I'll get the little girl away from him afore long. When the boat struck the Brooklyn Pier, James Martin was asleep. There ain't no hurry, thought Ben. I'll let him sleep a little while. After the boat had made three or four trips, Ben went across and shook Martin gently. The latter opened his eyes and looked at him vacantly. "'What's the matter?' he said thickly. "'We've got to Brooklyn,' said Ben. "'If you want to go home, we'll have to go off the boat.' James Martin rose mechanically and, walking through the cabin, passed out upon the pier and then through the gates. "'Where'll we go now?' asked Ben. "'Is it far off?' "'Yes,' said Martin. "'We'll take a horse car.' "'All right, Governor. Just tell us what one we want and we'll jump aboard.' Martin was sufficiently in his senses to be able to impart this information correctly. He made no objection to Ben's paying the fare for both, which the latter did as a matter of policy, thinking that in his present friendly relations with Mr. Martin, he was likely to obtain the information he desired with considerably less difficulty than he anticipated. On the whole, Ben plumed himself on his success and felt that as a detective he had done very well. Martin got out at the proper place, and Ben, of course, got out with him. "'That's where I live,' said Martin, pointing to the house. "'Won't you go in?' "'Thank you for the compliment,' said Ben, "'but I've got some important business to attend to, "'and shall have to be going. "'How's your headache?' "'It's better,' said Martin. "'Glad to hear it,' said Ben. "'Martin, on entering the house, "'was informed of the ill conduct of Rose, "'as Mrs. Waters chose to represent it, "'and that, in consequence, she had been shut up in the cellar. "'Keep her there as long as you like,' said Martin. "'She's a bad girl, and it won't do her any harm.' If rose had known that an agent of her brother's was just outside the house and was about to carry back to rufus tidings of her whereabouts, she would have felt considerably better. There is an old saying that the hour which is darkest is just before the day. End of section ten recording by Tory Falter.